Hi there, I'm Adam Murray. Subtle Disruptors is about pondering two questions. Given our current context, what does it mean to live well in this moment? And how can we make changes that will shape the world we will live in so that it becomes closer to the one we want to inhabit? We do this by talking with people who you probably haven't heard of, and typically living in places that are not front of mind in discussions about disruption. But we think these people are embodying a fascinating response to these two questions, and doing it in a way that involves subtle changes all of us can make. We want us all to get as much as possible out of these stories, to feel encouraged, connected, and resolute in our own quests of subtle disruption. They're such ordinary people. Nothing glamorous, nothing flash, nothing cool, but extraordinary people in what impact they have on the world. And I really love that. I feel that it's so countercultural because the world is so much about image and glamour and cool and blah, blah, blah. And I think it's a bit of a red herring. Sometimes I look at the world around me and I'm overwhelmed by the complexity that I see. There's obviously things going wrong, there's obviously problems, but sometimes I just don't know where to start. It goes with myself as well. Sometimes when I'm going through challenges and difficult moments, I can feel paralysed in that and not knowing the first step to take. How do I bring about the change that I want to see in myself and in the world around me? Our guest for this week is from an organisation called Initiatives of Change. And they're seeking to bring about change in the world and the way they go about this is through enabling personal change. And that could be through being somebody's friend. It could be through them attending a workshop. I like how our guest put it. It could be simply through accompanying people without any agenda, without any actual prerogative or agenda to help. Allowing them to feel as they need to feel and to change as they're ready to change. I'm Adam Murray, and thanks for listening to Athalia Schwartz on subtle disruption through deep sharing of narrative. So, Athalia, it's good to be sitting here on this couch with you. I'm going to ask you two questions. I normally start with a question, which is, what place have you chosen for our conversation and why? I'm going to ask you, first of all, what place did you choose for our conversation and why? (laughs) (laughs) And we're not actually there at the moment, but yeah. Where did you choose for our conversation? Okay, well, initially I had hoped to meet on the pontoon on the Yarra River opposite Herring Island, which is just on Alexandra Ave, just down from a cafe up there. It's a beautiful spot that's one of those, I don't know, like oases in the city where you have nature and calm and a bit of wild. And it's also opposite Herring Island, which is a man-made island that was, I think that was like a carved out for a quarry in the 1920s or something. But now it's only open on the weekends or public holidays and you catch a little ferry over and there's art and sculptures. And it's, it's one of those places that's just a quiet achiever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Not super glamorous, but a quiet achiever, but beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And we couldn't sit there because it was a bit windy down That's there right. today. We might still get a little bit of noise of the wind in the background, but why had you chosen that location? Well, I had chosen that. Well, to be honest, this was the, where we are on the veranda at Armagh was my other choice. So yeah. Okay. That's all good. Cool. But I had chosen that place simply because it's beautiful And it's been a place where I have gone to at different times. It's a place where I take people when they come to Melbourne to sort of show Mm. what Melbourne's like. Mm -hmm. And it's also a place where I have gone to do, like sometimes if I need to do some 
<laughs> letting go or ritualistic kind of, you know, little kind of personal ceremony type thing. Yeah. That's a beautiful spot because you're surrounded by the water and you've got the wind and you just kind of got lots of elements around you. So it's a nice place for that. Yeah. <laughs> I can see that. Yeah. And so we're sitting on the veranda here at Amar. Tell us a bit about, well, why you chose this location as your second location. Well, so this is Amar. This is my workplace and this is also my home. I mean, this is such a special place. For me, Amar represents the fact that miracles are possible. This place, huge mansion and block of land, was a gift in 1956. And, you know, that stuff just doesn't really happen very much. And the gift was given under the conditions of an anonymity. The, the benefactor didn't want anyone to know. And also he wanted the people who were still here, like the gardener and the man living in the gatekeeper's cottage, to stay here until they chose otherwise. So every part of the gift was a gift of generosity. And, you know, it just never ceases to blow my mind that someone would give something so huge just so, yeah, open-heartedly, like not looking for anything, not even any kind of acclamation in return. Yeah. So it's special for me because I need to believe that miracles are possible in the world and this place represents that. And it's also special because it's just... It's like the energetic legacy of this place is very beautiful. Now, it's not only beautiful. There's lots of, you know, where there's light, there's dark. So that's fine. You know, acknowledge that. But a lot of the conversations that have happened here because it's a centre for dialogue and, you know, a place where bridges have been built, whether it's between unions and employers or Indigenous and non-Indigenous or um, various diaspora community groups, it's a place that's been the, there's the residue, that's the intention of the place. And so mm. you can kind of feel that mm. as well as the care. Like people have loved and cared for this place. Again, not for any reward, but just because they love and care for it. And that makes a beautiful atmosphere as well. Yeah. Was it given with an intention for that kind of energy to be here or for that kind of work to happen here? Yes, it was, yeah. yeah. So so I worked for this organisation called Initiatives of Change. And in 1956, they were looking for a centre or a base for the work. And, you know, they, they did a lot of significant work with leaders at that time. You know, we would have conferences and they'd be opened by prime ministers and so forth. So mm. it was quite a relevant group at that time. Cecil Mackay, who gave this place, had met with the team a few times and had also watched some of the impact of our work in terms of improving relationships with unions and employees and and was quite impressed. And so the place was on the market for sale and we put in an offer that was outrageously low because we didn't have nearly enough money. And he said, you know, I've considered your offer, but no, I'm sorry. I'm looking for more than that. And then uh, a week later an envelope arrived to this guy, George Wood, that had the keys to the front door inside and a note that just said, I have reconsidered my option. I believe that you're bringing light in a darkening world and I would like to give you this place. Oh, wow. Amazing. I, I mean, it's, it's hard to believe that stuff is true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it is true. Yeah. And so... And then he also left some furnishings here and some paintings and things like that. So, And then since then you've had 
you know, various families and communities living here and the place has been furnished and had various gifts from people who have found some kind of, I don't know, like healing or peace or change and wanted to, yeah, give something in return. So you've got the place is full of amazing treasures and stories. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've actually had a workshop here once with somebody else that I've interviewed on this podcast, Candice. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it was, I felt that energy when I was in that workshop as well. Yeah. yeah was, each room is quite distinct but also, yeah, pretty awesome to be sitting in and be, being with other people in it. It yeah. is. And one of the things that has been valuable, I mean, you come in here and it's very colonial. It feels very 1950s. It's very colonial. So that can also feel oppressive. Mm. But when we've had, you know, like Indigenous, you know, people staying here and so forth, the actual, like, hospitality and the service to them in this place has been quite profound because instead of, you know, the whole culture has been that they would come into places like this and be servants in a place like this. And so to come into this place can feel very overwhelming because it's, you know, taps into a whole history and systemic Mm. injustice. But then the experience of being really honoured and respected and served here can be quite meaningful. Yeah. 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 You're saying you live here as well as work here, but it's not like you're working from home really, is it? No. No. (laughs) So tell us about the, the living arrangements here. So at the moment we have, so this block of land You have the gatekeeper's cottage, then you have the big mansion or the main house or whatever you want to call it. And then in the 1970s, another house was built in the bottom to house more people, you know, who were part of the work. And so I now live in the house at the bottom. So I had a baby last year and at that time that house became available. Some people suggested that I might move in there. And initially I was opposed to the idea because I didn't want to be so close. I thought, how will I have separation? Yeah. However, I reconsidered and decided to move in and I'm just so grateful because it's been such a blessing. So the first thing is we have a community of about 10 people who live here. They're from different parts of the world and they they work in other jobs but their intention and they serve, you know, through helping out in the house or helping out with programs and sort of, you know, the practices which is space for reflection and, you know, values-based living and stuff like that. Mm. So I live in the house at the bottom of the garden, so when I come up to work I just walk up the hill, which, yeah, has meant that when I had a child I wasn't isolated because I could come up and have lunchtime with the office and so forth. Yeah. And then when I have babysitters looking after him, if it's just, it's just been yeah. such a blessing and amazingly... There's one lady here, Pari, who is from Nagaland in northeast India. And after I have my baby, you know, for her culturally, everyone's involved in helping to take care of that baby. And she would just come down and she would do my washing and she showed me how to bath him and give him these oil massages and all these things that just wouldn't have happened anywhere else. But was so wonderful to learn and so wonderful to feel having that support. And that you're not alone and all of a sudden you've got this baby to raise and you're on your own. It was, yeah, it was so profound because when you have a baby, it's like the first time that you really need Mm. other people. Mm. 
or for me anyway, like you can often go through life without really needing people uh-huh. and you might be happy to help serve and give to others but not necessarily receive. Yes. Which I think probably I was a bit like. So actually having to need people and then having people just be so giving was, yeah, really a big learning experience and a massive blessing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm interested in why there is a community here and why people come to it as well. That seems a little bit separate or is it all part of the same thing? Well, it is a little bit separate. I mean, it was always part of the same thing historically because people who worked for the organisation were vocational workers. They were full-time volunteers, so they didn't draw a salary, but the organisation would support them in ways and so such as, you know, living here with their families. But more importantly, it's about living the practice, so to speak. So, you know, in order to overcome the challenges of the world, we really need to work together. And our whole thing is about really deep relationship building and the trust that's required because that's the foundation that Mm -hmm. enables real change to happen Mm -hmm. at a personal level, a social level and an international level, every level. And so, you know, having that practice of having to live that is very different to having the language and the tools for that. So there's also the intention of how do we how do we be what we're trying to do. That all sounds great. We've done it terribly at various points in time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the reality of these things is often quite different, but that's yeah. the intention and that's what draws people together. And now now we have a group of people and our, it's the same intention. Like what the world needs is people living in community, having to work out those rough edges of challenge and disagreement and so forth. Because if we can't do that at the personal level where it's insignificant, mm. how the hell are we going to be doing that at a national level where you've got massive, severe polarisation of people? Mm. So, yeah, it's sort of like how do we have the incubator here to be really living that stuff and learning that stuff because, yeah, that's what we need to be in order to bring that in the world. Yeah. So I take it that that then informs the work, like some of the learnings of the community then that all the things that are happening internally inform what happens externally? Well, yes and no. No in the sense that what happens in the community is what happens in the community and we have our own strategic direction So there's that kind of separation. But yes, in the sense that, you know, there are a few of us who live here and work here. So yes, we're absolutely bringing those. And then also, yes, in the sense that, you know, what we're doing, you know, this space gets used by the, for the work that we're doing. And so the community who live here interact and engage and support that. Yeah. In different ways. Yeah. Yeah. To go back to that point you made about focusing on the interpersonal and the relationship how does that happen here? Like how are you intentional about that? Like is there practices or values or yeah, or is it just, does it just happen? No, nothing just happens. You've got to design for things. So up until, I don't know, 10 years ago or something, five years ago, there was a much stronger, bigger community that was here and then that sort of dissipated and we had a caretaker mode with just a few people living here and it became more of a share house model. And now we're right now just at the process of like, okay, we want to be a community, what does that mean? But so I can't say that we've created our vision, that's something that we're hoping to do soon. But 
in terms of practices, so we have a quiet time together every Sunday where we just have quiet and then just, you know, reflect around whatever's going on and then just share at the end. So the idea with that is that we're always kind of seeking a deeper discernment and then in our own lives and then for things collectively and then just sharing that Mm. with each other because, yeah, when you know what's really going on for someone, your ability to cut them slack and to appreciate them in new ways Mm. grows exponentially. And then also we have Tuesday night dinners. So we have dinner together every Tuesday night and that's for us to have a meal together. We do potluck and it's also a time for if, if anyone's around and we want to introduce people or whatever, then they can come to Tuesday night dinners. Yeah. 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 And so through those things, that interpersonal and that relation building, they're the foundation for that. At the moment, yes. Yeah. I think as we get clearer on what, living in in intentional community means to us. So at the moment we're living in organic community and we're going to shift into a more intentional community. Yeah. So what that will then look like, I imagine will include those same things. I mean, it's not about putting onus and burdens on mm, people, mm. but it is about like I think we can get better at, I mean, often so much in life just comes back down to having honest conversations with each other and giving feedback about what's going on in the moment rather than holding on to things. (laughs) (laughs) It's pretty basic stuff. And we need, so I think that we'll probably talk more about how we make the space for that. Mm -hmm. So those sorts of things. And who knows? Let's see, like, depending on who's here and what they bring, it will emerge. Yeah. 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 The, the wonderful thing that we have here is that we have people from various parts of the world who, you know, like living in community is an abstract concept to them because they are community. <laughs> they don't know any other way of being. Yeah. So that that changes. It's not like we're all trying to learn it together. Actually, for other people, it's default yeah. and I get to learn from them, yeah. which is like, ah, oh, yeah, okay, yeah. cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Speaking of feedback, we've just done a course together, which we were facilitating and I was participating in, which was kind of built around that idea of giving people feedback. I think it was also about a few other things for me as well. It was also about how to show up in situations of ambiguity, uncertainty, paradox, complexity. I think those two things are related as well. And we were having a separate discussion about about that and about like it was amazing in that session, it was a pretty amazing feeling of trust and connection and openness and ready for growth. And I'm interested in that kind of thing and what you're looking to create in the intentional community and how we might bring that into more places in the world. And I'm thinking about my workplace as well mm. and maybe you can reflect on that and we have seen it actualised in more than just a workshop, I suppose, is what I'm getting at. Yeah. Uh, I mean... Yeah, totally. So I think about the same thing and I also likewise carry, you know, the impact and the experience of that profound feedback and honesty that we had in that workshop and how you bring that into other places because, you know, the context of that is that you don't know each other necessarily. You may not have an ongoing relationship. It's a short time-bound thing. It's a very well-held space. You know, the messiness of other life 
just doesn't appear in there, especially when you've got, you know, the people that you work with or whatever who just you don't particularly like <laughs> or just, you know, there's, which is just the reality. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, you feel disappointed in oftentimes and so does that mean that you're always trying to give that feedback or, yeah. you know. Yeah. So what I'm hoping is that for me in terms of the community, what I will be bringing is the first step is that we all collectively agree that we want to do that, that we want to give each other that real deep honesty, that we will trust each other that it's coming from a place of care as best it can be, although we're all wounded and it will also come from a place of wound sometimes. And then how we, yeah, like what are some of the practices that we can use that will encourage that? Because I think once you start... When it goes wrong, it goes really damagingly wrong. And that's why it has to be so careful Mm -hmm. because you can really wound people. Yeah. So, yeah, I think for me, so I think our first thing will be, do we really want to make this space where we really give each other this kind of thing so that we really have this deep learning? Yeah. My sense is yes, like we, you know, that's the kind of conversations we have and so then actually starting that. I think the challenge will be is that not everybody is necessarily there. So how you work with people that are at very different places in that, it's difficult because if you make it a sort of, I feel like everybody has to be a part of it because opting in and opting out doesn't work. But what we expect of people in that space, I think needs to be generous and slow. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Where I've seen it work, I mean, for me when I think about that stuff, the only times that I've really felt it work really effectively is when it's kind of on a short-term basis. So, like, I've done work for programs that are sort of like six weeks overseas and we'll have a team of people and we will have really that kind of deep honesty and feedback with each other. You know, when you're like this, I feel like you're insecure. And when you're insecure, it has this impact on me and, that, you know, like deep stuff. But the perpetuity of something is a very different ingredient. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't really, yeah, I don't have much on that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's an area that I want to keep exploring, I think, too, because I, I haven't really experienced it either. I think there is a lot of risk involved, like you say, but a lot of upside available if it's done well too, to the organisation or whatever the group of people are and to individuals as well. I think it's being done well in pockets that I've heard of, but I've never experienced it. Yeah. Yeah. Because the sceptical part of me then thinks about, you know, you look at these things that have sort of often it seems to be like a sort of 30 or 40 year cycle where it's amazing and profound and deep and then somehow things start to go wrong and then it implodes and there's, I don't know, like some kind of corruption or abuse or whatever it might be. I mean, there's, so, yeah, I don't know. It's just all of these things are tricky roads to navigate. (laughs) But I, I mean, I also think what other choice have we got? Like we've got to do this stuff. We got to. <laughs> and when we get it wrong, we just got to learn from it. But this is what we need. If we're going to, I mean, you know, on the news this morning, 11,000 scientists have put out this report saying that we are in a climate emergency and we need to be taking radical action. I mean, that's just only one facet of the challenges that we face. I mean, we like, 
I just feel like we're on the Titanic and I don't understand why other people don't feel like we're on the Titanic (laughs) and we're slowly sinking and the band keeps on playing. But we still have the chance. We still can turn things around. Like the only way to solve massive challenges is through local small steps. Like that's complexity. You know, you can't understand the big. All you can do is take small steps and those small steps happen in relationship. Mm. So even if nothing else in life, if it's about building deep relationships that can really withstand things, be resilient relationships, because that's sort of countercultural in our world today. It's often like, well, he did this to me, so, you know, I've got a boundary and that's not okay. Yeah. And, of course, that's really important and you can't lose that. And we also need to know when a relationship is there and it's damaged by something but we need to move beyond that Mm. and rebuild it, let it get stronger or let it be resilient through things because it is inevitable that we will let each other down in big ways and small ways. So, yeah, both of those, like needing to end and keep boundaries and really do the work of rebuilding and letting go need to be held. Yeah. So maybe that's a good way to start talking about initiatives of change as well and some of the work that you're doing. So that's the work part of what you do here as well. I just actually don't know too much about initiatives of change and what it's up to apart from a few things that you've told me, but is it about kind of tackling those big complex issues at a grassroots level? Is That that is the impact. Yeah. What we are about is personal transformation leading to, as an individual changes, the trickle-out effect of that is significant. Yeah. I'll tell you a little story yeah, which gives it. you a sort of example. Yeah. So this is an international movement. It's currently active in over 60 countries around the world. I'm going to tell you about a story from Europe. So after World War II ended... Europe was decimated. The Swiss team looked at the destruction of Europe and Switzerland wasn't damaged and they felt that they had a real responsibility to help rebuild Europe. So they didn't know how to do this, but they had an idea to build a conference space where people could come and they could have the conversations that they needed to heal and rebuild. So there was this beautiful old hotel, looks like a fairy tale castle that was on the market and it was going cheap because world wars are bad for the hotel industry. <laughs> yeah. And these Swiss families, 60 families, pulled together their entire life inheritances and they bought this old hotel. You know, it sleeps about 700 or something and a few other, you know, spaces around it. And it's it's magical. It's in the Swiss Alps overlooking Lake Geneva. Yeah. It is truly magical. The most crystal pure water, you know, is what you shower in there. Yeah, wow. Well. And so they bought it in 1946. It had been housing Jewish refugees at the time. They Then they had thousands of volunteers come over and clean it, get it ready, retile, you know, re-curtain, fix up all of the damage. And then it was 1946 or 1947, the summer of, that they held their first conference. Now, the whole principle with that was that you had politicians, you had labour leaders, you had everyday people all coming together. Everybody that was a functioning part of society needed to have a voice in it. It wasn't just the leaders and the decision makers and all political groups. So there was this one lady that came, Irene Law, She was a French woman. She'd been part of the French resistance. Her son and husband had been tortured by the Gestapo and she hated the Germans. 
So one year, she'd been invited a few times, but she hadn't come, and this year she'd finally come to Co. She was one of the first French female politicians elected after the war, but she was really disheartened because as a woman, they still weren't being heard, and um, she'd sort of felt so hopeful and now I was feeling deeply defeated. So she came and um, she was at the conference and then she heard that the Germans were coming. There was a German contingent that was coming. This was the first time Germans had been allowed outside of Germany after the war. And she became very upset and she was like, I can't stay. I can't stay. I cannot be here if the Germans are here. So she went off to her room preparing to pack her bags and she bumped into Frank Bookman, who was the sort of founder of the movement, and he said, bonjour, madame, how are you? And she said, well, uh, I'm leaving. And he said, why? She said, because the Germans are coming. And he just said to her, and madame, how will we rebuild Europe without the Germans? She went off to her room and she, you know, the story goes she spent, you know, a day and a night, restless turmoil, struggling, struggling, didn't come out, didn't eat. And then the next morning, another lady knocked on her door and just said, Irene, would you like to meet a German lady? And she said, wait. So they organised a meeting out on the terrace and uh, Irene just started pouring out her pain, her anger, her hatred towards the Germans for everything that had happened and what they'd done to her country and what they'd done to her family. And the lady who'd organised this meeting was like, oh, truth, what have I done? (laughs) But the German lady just listened to it all. And then at the end she said, she said, you're right, I'm sorry. We, the German people, did too little and we did it too late. And we brought untold sorrows and I'm sorry. And then she said, can I tell you my story? So Irene said yes. And so she told her story, which was that her husband had been one of the people who had tried to assassinate Hitler unsuccessfully and had been shot as a result. So this meeting was a profound moment of changing very deep narratives that both of them held. The next day at the conference in the main hall, there was about 500 people there. Irene Law stood up and on the front stage, she said, you know, this is just after the war. This is as the atrocities as Auschwitz is coming to light. Like the shame on the Germans, the hatred is just so high. Irene Law stood up and she said in front of everybody there, she said, I wish to apologise. She said, I realise that the hatred that I have been carrying towards the Germans makes me the same and I want to let go of that hatred and I want to rebuild Europe together and I'm sorry for this hatred. Mm. You just couldn't have had a more radical thing happen. (laughs) And they say that that's the day that the bridge across the Rhine was built and then she's dedicated the rest of her life travelling throughout Germany sharing her story, trying to rebuild the relationships. And, yeah, I mean, from that sense, that space is also, you know, a place where the sorts of roots of the European Union developed, not the bureaucracy that we have today, but the idea that if we're not going to fight anymore, we need to need each other. Yeah. How do we need each other? It's that kind of personal transformation, changing of a story, letting go of a story and taking on a new story that can have profound effects 
for your family or for your country, that that's what we're about. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's a really, really cool example. They're not <laughs> <Yeah>. all so <laughs> profound. Yeah. But nonetheless impactful for the individuals. Yeah. At the heart of it, that's what we're about. And then how we do that is through programs and training and also accompaniment of people, just being a friend to people. There's a guy who's my mentor who's worked for this movement most of his life. He's 97 now. He was a fighter pilot in World War II. He felt his calling was to walk alongside prime ministers He has been the personal friend of six prime ministers in Australia. So he made it his job to know the struggles that they were facing. He would read these incredibly long, dense documents to understand what was going on for them. He never met them with any agenda, never any sense of what they should be doing, but simply to be a support to them because they carried a huge weight. Wow. So, you know, and that kind of accompaniment is critical to our work just to be a support for people. Yeah. And with the only intention is to help them live their values more deeply or their faith more deeply. Mm. So we are very intercultural, multi-faith. We had a Christian root, so the Christianity was the deep foundation, but, you know, it's spiritual now. And, you know, where it exists in India, it's obviously not Christian, and where it exists in Lebanon, yeah, it's, you know, so depending on where it is, it, it absorbs the faith of that place. Yeah. 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 Two things that really strike me when you were talking about that. One is that reimagining what the story is. I'm not quite sure how you put it, but something about... Yeah, that reimagining of the story and something about values as well. And I think we might have talked a, bit, a little bit about this previously, but can you, I think you said something in one of our other conversations about one of the things we need to do is rediscover our values or, or something along those lines. Anyway, can you talk to me about... Radical self-inquiry or something? Something like that, yeah. Well... I mean, morality is a really unsexy word (laughs) for many reasons and many justified reasons. But if we're going to have spiritual lives, morality is a part of that. Like any spiritual tradition holds that. Now, we all get it wrong and it's a slippery slope, but actually having integrity about the way we live is profoundly important. The framework that's in IFC is that you have these four values of love, purity, unselfishness and honesty. And so purity, let's be honest, did definitely have a flavour of chastity and traditional notions of purity at times because, you know, we are affected by the culture and in the 50s that's what that was about. Today what that's about is much more about understanding what's my intention and am I transparent in that that's the sort of yeah and that's a difficult (laughs) difficult thing so how do we use our values so when we're making decisions and looking at things and thinking about our lives and thinking about our relationships what are the values that we're holding and how are we living that in that because our values are a very powerful framework to be making decisions and then coupled with that this idea of taking space for reflection and listening to a deeper wisdom God or nature or higher self or whatever way you want to understand that are the sort of main tools. Yeah. And then we're all 
born or we all over our lives acquire baggage, depending on how you look at the world, we're born in with some things as well. What we are about and one sort of thing that we're talking about at the moment, we had a program last year called Australian Sharing a New Story, which was about coming together and listening to each other and hearing each other's stories and thinking about what's the new story? What's the new story that I want for my own life? And what's the new story I want for my community and for my country? Because, you know, Australia, Noel Pearson, I think it is, I hope, talks about the fact that, you know, Australia is a three-storey country. You've got the story of Indigenous Australia, the oldest living civilization that took phenomenal care of this land. Then you've got the story of the British occupation, arrival, colonialization, And, you know, there's good in that story and there's a lot of pain in that story. And now you've got the third story of multicultural Australia. And all of those stories are real and all of those stories need to exist. And so instead of just trying to focus, dominate, have, you know, hold on to one story. And so it can be difficult depending on what background you come from. If you come from a migrant background where you've had a history of war and you've inherited a particular hatred or dislike or prejudice against people, that's a new story opportunity. If you're someone like me who's born in a country like Australia where I don't inherit those sorts of things, my new story is more around... How do I let go of the stories of insecurity or how do I let go of the narrative that I carry as being a single mum and so forth? These are stories. How do I let go of that to take on a new story for my life and then from living that space, what's the new story that I want with the community that I'm a part of? And then what's the new story that we want for Australia? Because we have so much potential and so much possibility if we so choose. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. I think you're talking a little bit about, I guess, the story of the organisation there and the people that have been involved with it for so long. And can you talk about some of the change that's had to happen in the organisation too in recent (laughs) times? (laughs) Yeah. So it's been a very profound change. So... Initiatives of Change, it was formerly known as Moral Rearmament, changed its name in 2001, has always been a movement. So if you look at our website, it's a movement of people who are committed to bringing the change that they want to see in the world, starting with themselves. So first of all, we were a movement of people, an organism as opposed to an organisation. Our first transition has been to develop an organisation around the organism. Initially, people felt that there was resistance to that. That's organisation, that's the world's way, that's not our way. Because everybody that's been evolved over those years, they consider themselves revolutionaries. That's the language they have. They were revolutionaries rebuilding a better world. Mm. I don't think that in our current day we have that same clarity of purpose. We live in a postmodern world. Things are just far too grey for that. We don't have great enemies like countries or communism or whatever it might be like it's just a different world now but so first of all was to say okay no organism and organization coexist and they need to coexist together yeah so then starting to bring in levels of organization so that means having clear bodies having clear roles and responsibilities and leadership accountabilities that means having the processes by which people are held to account The first thing that we did was this cultural and structural change process that was 
led by this guy, Jonathan Klugman, who has an anthroposophical background or Steiner. And that was really important because we needed somebody that had a very deep spiritual background to their work to A, build the trust of people and to be able to understand and move us forward because everybody here is, you know, this is their calling, this is their life. They've given everything to it. So, one, for them to even have the courage to do this work is pretty amazing. But on the other hand, we also needed to do this work because like many sort of institutions that were big in the 20th century, we are no longer relevant. We do not have a big membership base. Our message is just as important, but we are not articulating it in a way that is reaching people. Well, at least I believe it's still just as important. So the first thing was to say, okay, understand what is. So we did a whole lot of work around understanding the hidden play rules or the systemic structures that are unconscious. Make it all conscious and then look at what do we want to keep. And, you know, there was all kinds of stuff in that because there's like Christian legacy around, you know, sort of 1950s Christian sort of Mm. behaviours and what's appropriate. So bring all that to the surface and is that really what we think and is that really what we want to be like? Hell no. Great. How do we, you know, and even by naming that stuff, individually nobody thinks like that but when you get the collective together, that sort of collective energy sort of takes over and it becomes more conservative. Yeah. So we, you know, did a whole lot of work around naming hidden play rules And then what do we want to let go of and what do we want to keep? And then building structures that will enable us to start to become clearer about the work that we do, how we have more focus. As a movement, people do what they feel called to do. We need to find the right balance between letting people continue to be a part of the movement and do what they feel called to do, which may have nothing to do with the work of the organisation. Right. <laughs> so trying to separate wow. out what is the core work of the organisation, have enough level of engagement so that people can be a part of that because we need to have more impact and also provide the right level of support to the people who just want to be part of the movement. Yeah. We haven't got it right <laughs> yet. <Yeah. laughs> so becoming an organisation, keeping the right level of organism, learning how to make conscious what has been unconscious and constant need for reflection and being aware has been the sort of change process that we've been on. And now we're looking at another big fundamental transformation around money and how we understand and work with money because, you know, the ethos has always been where God guides, he will provide. So if this is what you're meant to do, you will get what you need by working. You know, people worked hard to fundraise and tell the story and attract that. But, you know, that's not really a sustainable model now, particularly when you need to plan and so forth. And as an organisation, we have a strategic direction and we have focus areas and we need to be able to invest and resource those. So we don't want to lose that entirely because there's truth in that, you know, but also find the right balance and also as a spiritual organisation and as an organisation that works a lot with people who do not have much money, we don't want to become inaccessible. So access is really important for us. And then also the nature of it is also that if you pay for a program, you then also have a different expectation. Yeah. So we just need to work all that stuff out and it's going to take a lot of soul-searching and consciousness and 
yeah, shared discernment around what that should look like for us moving forwards. Yeah, yeah. I remember you saying something about how amazed you were by the courage of some people willing to willing to almost detach themselves from their life work and to be willing to question, like, the foundations of it within the organisation? I mean, it was amazing. During this cultural and structural change process, we would have these workshops. So I was involved in this. This is why I'm here now. Mostly, who knows, like, why things happen. It's destiny, really. But the guy who was facilitating it, I was supporting him. This is before I was working here. Yeah. And I was just so fascinated by the process that I was in it. And one of the things that fascinated me was, yeah, like just watching people go through this. And so these are people who have worked together and given their entire lives, given up other careers that they were, you know, very intelligent, capable, gifted people that could have had huge impact in other ways but felt called to give their lives to making the world a different place through this particular vehicle, there are many, and then to sit back and say, okay, shit, where are we and where did we go wrong? And, yeah, like at the age of 70, like you're looking backwards and that's your whole life's contribution and, you know, there were times when it was just so heavy, so heavy, but the courage of people to stay there and to keep working at it and to, yeah, move through it just... It blew my mind. Yeah. It was incredible. And people have been transformed, not in huge ways, but, you know, just the conversations that we have now are very, very different. Yeah. The expectations of people, each other and new people, are very, very different. It blew my mind to see it's just testament to the strength of their commitment in the first place that they could mm. go through that process and we're still going through it in in, to a certain extent and one of the things is that we had a I don't know how conscious it was for me it's very conscious I don't know whether it was a collectively conscious thing but when you have a change management process there's kind of like either getting it done is the priority or taking people on the journey is the priority Now, depending on what you're doing, if you're an organisation that's about manufacturing something, then probably just getting it done is the main thing. We're an organisation that's all about people. So that meant that we had to go at the pace that meant that the slowest person stayed. Yeah. Because that was really important. You don't want to lose people along the way. And that's what we've done. How long did that take? Well, the formal process was four years. But we're still, you know, we're still, that legacy still lives on and we're in a new stage of transformation. So it's ongoing. Yeah. 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 (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's that's longer than the term of a lot of CEOs in organisations, four years. Yeah. uh, It's a commitment to bringing people along. It is. It is. But, you know, that's who we are. That's what we're about. Change starts with me and if we can't work that with our own selves and support each other in that, then, you know, that's a pretty massive thing to be compromising. So your role here as the executive officer, I'm interested in your why. Like what drew you to this work? What You said it was a bit about fate or destiny, but, you know, what is it 
why do you love this work so much or why are you doing what you're doing? When I first took on this role, so I was involved doing the CSC process and things for a few years and then I took on this role. When the letter came out asking whether it went to a few people asking whether they'd be interested, I had a meditation retreat for three weeks and so I put that question in at the beginning. I hadn't necessarily wanted to live in Australia, so it was a really big decision, like am I going to move, settle over here or am I going to come back and do this? And uh, at the end of the meditation retreat, I felt very clearly that this was it. And I have always felt, even though I have, like, I'm a, I get a bit carried away with things, so my frustrations have run (laughs) deeply and I have torn my hair out and struggled enormously and probably caused enormous suffering to others as well. But in all of that, I just had a deeper sense that, no, this is where I'm meant to be. This is where I'm meant to be for me to work out some of my stuff and this is I'm meant to be a part of this this work. So there's that level, just a sense of, no, this is, this is where I'm meant to be. It won't be forever, but I also trust that I will feel that when the time comes. And also I had a Christian upbringing. I spent years rejecting that. You know, I'm not a Christian or anything like that, but... So I felt comfortable in this culture. You know, I was able to retranslate things in a way that someone who maybe didn't have a Christian background would struggle to. Yeah. And I just really believe in what we do. And I've seen the impact of it. And it's so simple. You know, there are many boats. What we're about, it's deeply radical, but it's nothing new. There's variations of it across organisations and religions the whole world over. This is just one articulation of it. Yeah. But at the heart of it is so much simple stuff, just like caring for people. You know, people here, they remember my death anniversaries in my family. Hmm. You know, like just something like that is really like, ah, so special. And I just feel like I just learn so much. I look at all these people that I work with, many of whom me at times, but I also just, they're such ordinary people, nothing glamorous, nothing flash, nothing cool, but extraordinary people in what impact they have on the world. And I really love that. I feel that it's so countercultural because the world is so much about image and glamour and cool and blah, blah, blah. And I think it's a bit of a red herring. What's it diverting us from? The reality of accepting life as it is and who we really are and the light and the dark that needs to be there and and the fact that, you know, looks have always mattered, but looks matter in a new way in the world at the moment. We're creating a generation of people who don't see themselves from inside, they see themselves from outside. We don't even know what impact that's going to have, but it's pretty, pretty massive. So I think it's diverting us from our, well, I don't know, that's a big question depending on how you look at the world, whether or not there's an apocalypse coming or it's the age of Carly and the next, I I have no idea. I don't know what I think about that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Goodbye, Beth, another time. (laughs) I have a couple of other questions for you. One's like just a really tangible example, like what's one of the, the impacts that you've talked about, what's an example of one that you have seen or comes to mind or is quite memorable about the work that's happened here and the the change that that has been brought about through that? Well, okay, 
I'll just tell two little things. One, Creators of Peace is an international peace-building program that we run for women. We have, you know, it's a weekend program where you do a lot of reflection of it's the same thing, you know, like in order to build peace, I have power to build peace in the world. It starts in me and it starts in my family yeah. and then in my community. And so we ran one and had a couple of South Sudanese women in that and then they went on to do the facilitator training and now one of them is running those peace circles in Juba in South Sudan at the moment. Yeah. And, you know, like that's just awesome because that's what they need. They need to be able to come together and talk with each other, even if it's just the coming together and talking with each other, let alone the actual thinking about letting go of a hatred and a pain and an injustice that's there to build a new story. And then another thing that I, an impact that for me I have learned is that the people here, the sort of vocational workers, our heritage I would call them because internationally in Australia we have a lot of those people, like we're quite rich we have a rich capital compared to other places in the world because it's interesting. IFCs, like other organisations, the, the sorry, is a microcosm of the macrocosm. The West is struggling. The West is sort of dilapidated and failing and Asia and Africa are growing and thriving. But we have, you know, a sort of real capital of people who really carry the legacy of our work because, you know, it's a lived thing. It's not spoken. And so... I have watched people here. People will come and get involved and then they don't get involved and they be a bit flaky. And, and I, in my head I'm like, why, why are you still going? Like they're not interested. Let it go. And they don't. They just gently just keep at it, you know, just a phone call every six months. Just always keep that door open. Always believe in the possibility for that person. And then, you know, often sometimes that turns into something, you know, like we have a new board member who's just come back and joined the board after 18 years, doing a program 18 years ago, having a fundamental transformative experience and now coming back 18 years later to serve. And I just find that so amazing because I am so quick to just be like, well, they're not interested. That's cool. Leave it be. And so on the one hand, yes, don't force people into things. But on the other hand, just always leave that door open. Always have a gentle care for people that means that they never feel judged, that they never feel unable to engage. And I just have no idea how to do that and I would never have even understood that as a concept without being here and I'm really inspired by it. Mm. Two great examples, (laughs) yeah. Pretty simple stuff but impactful. Yeah, and countercultural, I suppose, in many ways as yeah, well. Yeah, totally countercultural. Yeah. Totally countercultural. Yeah. Yeah. The last question is about reflecting on your own life or practices that you have and tying that back to the theme of the podcast, which is about, about this idea of subtle disruption and small changes that we can all be part of and all make. But something. It's such a cool concept. <laughs> yeah. So, something, I'm interested in something like a subtle thing that you do in your own life that has is an important part of what you do or something small that you did in the past that had a disproportionately large impact? Is there something that comes to mind? Well, I mean, the thing probably for me would be yoga. I have a yoga practice. Yeah. It's been my friend and my companion and my whatever for, I don't know, over 10 years now and it ebbs and it flows. But, yeah, 
for me, that enables me to learn through my body. And as someone who spends too much time in my mind getting into my body, that's the thing that has disrupted my life in a very positive way. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'll just tell you a story. When I first started doing yoga, I was still smoking and drinking and so forth. And um, I remember I bumped into my yoga teacher on the street and I had a cigarette in my hand, so I put it behind my back and I was like, hi. And he started laughing at me. He's like, what are you doing? I'm like, oh. He's like, why are you doing that? I was like, well, I'm ashamed. He's like, why are you ashamed? I'm like, because I'm smoking. And he's like, did I ever tell you not to smoke? I was like, no. He was like, so why are you hiding it? I'm like, because I know I shouldn't smoke and I know it's bad for me. And what's the point of doing all this yoga and blah, 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 blah. And he's just like, it's all in your head. It's like, I haven't told you to stop smoking. And he said, do you think I don't know that you smoke? You think I don't smell it on you every day? Of course I know that you smoke. He just said, you just keep doing the practice and don't worry about it. You will just let it go. And sure enough, that's what happened. I'd smoked for years and years and at some point I just didn't need it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that's another, like, that's just an example of how it changed me. (laughs) (laughs) Athalia, thank you so much for sharing, sitting next to me and talking about all this amazing stuff that's happening in this locale and the ripple effect that it's having. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for asking. Thank you for listening. Yeah. Thank you. Hey, thanks for listening. We are looking to spread these stories of subtle disruption in organic ways so that more people like you can be encouraged by them. One way you can help is through sharing this episode with a colleague or friend, someone who you think could get something good out of this conversation. If you want to get in touch with suggestions for guests or anything else, you can reach us through adam at subtledisruptors.com. I'm Adam Murray, and one day I look forward to hearing about your own subtle disruption. Bye for now. 